I want to read to you tonight again from the Gospel of Matthew, this time from Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Amen. And three Sunday nights, we're trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus through the eyes of Matthew. And so last week, it was the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, the story that we know as the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, the beginning of Jesus telling stories. Tonight, we've gone past half a dozen other stories that Jesus told in Matthew 13. We've moved on through two incidents in Matthew 14, and we come to a miracle. One of our favorite stories, right? A miracle that Jesus does. Lord willing, next week we'll skip right on past chapter 15 and chapter 16 to one of the most fascinating stories in the whole thing. That night when somehow the light inside Jesus could not be contained and it came shining out in what we call the transfiguration. So three very distinct kinds of glimpses of the Jesus that Matthew wrote about. Now tonight 
It's a miracle. But it's a miracle designed to teach us. And it's a miracle designed to help us understand some of our experiences, even if on the surface we've never been in that kind of storm and never walked on water. There's still something that identifies our experiences back with the story that is before us. I, uh, I read your bulletin when I came in tonight. I was uh, particularly interested in the section on those who are ill. It's a long list from my perspective. A lot of people, a lot of people in a variety of difficult situations that together illustrate the first main point of the sermon, which is Christians experience turmoil. We've already sung about the tumult. It's, it's a given, right? Christians experience turmoil. Now, I, I confess the reason I'm down here and not up here is that after last week I asked, could I please be down closer? Because, uh, as I said to the pastor, Horizon has spoiled me, okay? Horizon is a little church, and you are right up close. And it just felt like I was a long way off last Sunday night. By being a little church, one of the things Horizon can do that in most times you can't do is they take prayer requests. And uh, the three Sundays I've been there now, we probably average a dozen different prayer requests each week. But when I think about that little church experience in turmoil, here are two that have stood out. Last Sunday morning, a man said, well, on Friday, I was in on a head-on collision on the interstate. Oh, that's two days earlier. There he stands. I talked to him about it again this morning. He said, yes, there were three of us in the two cars, and we all walked away. Uh, maybe you walked away, but I would say you had a little turmoil in your life in the process. This morning, I noticed before the service that one of the young wives had her arm, I've forgotten which arm, up like this, and this hand is all wrapped up, and it looked pretty bad to me, but I didn't ask. And when it came time for the prayer request, her hand was one of the many that went up, and she said, I'm just grateful that our house did not burn to the ground. I don't know the rest of the story, but she got my attention. Christians experience turmoil. I hope your week hasn't been like either of those two stories, but at some level we do experience turmoil. Now let's look at how that relates to the passage here that we've just read. You know, the disciples have been with Jesus for a while now. Uh, they certainly by now are convinced that he is a special kind of person. He's a special man that has come from God. Now, Given that they were Jewish and that they'd had a lifetime of Jewish teaching, they anticipated that this special person, whenever he comes, is going to be someone who's going to deliver them. They're finally going to get set free from Rome. Israel will be the way it ought to be. And this leader is going to become the king. And given what else we know about some of his immediate disciples, I can imagine that they had already figured out where they were going to fit in his cabinet, right? You'll be the Secretary of State, and I'll be the Secretary of War, and we'll have our places when he, when he goes public. And then in chapter 14, we didn't read the feeding of the 5,000. They must have said, okay, finally, 
You know, we've been with him some months now. Now he's going to go really public, and it's going to become obvious who he is. He's fed 5,000 people. And the crowds are coming around more and more. They're beginning to talk about Jesus as the great prophet who is to come from God. And you can just hear those apostles getting excited in anticipation that they're going to be in on the ground floor of something really, really great. And just as it seems like it's really good, what does Jesus do? <laughs> he comes over to them and he says, well... You know, get in the boat. Go over to the other side of the lake. I'll, I'll join you later. <laughs> well, I don't know what their reaction really isn't recorded in the gospel, but uh, it seems to me from what we can see here, they must have been very reluctant to leave him at this point. I mean, this has been a very exciting day, feeding 5,000 people. Why in the world is he sending us off? We want to be around here. I can imagine that there's some turmoil going on in their minds and their hearts that night as they're trying to figure out how to put all the pieces together that they've learned about this Jesus. Just as you, as a Christian, have your moments where it seems so puzzling. Life just doesn't make sense. Yes, I'm a Christian but Jesus, I don't get it. Why is this thing happening to me? Why am I having this life experience at this time? Well, in the story, as Matthew tells it, as the night goes on, the storm comes up. I've never been on a boat in a really bad storm, but I have been in Elmhurst this summer. Okay? I think I understand. It's only been a month. I haven't forgotten. I can still count the 53 hours after the storm when I didn't have electricity. You know, I can tell you all about the great storm of this summer or summer or two back. Those storms stick with me. And those, oh, man, those are tough. And as the hours went by and the storm kept getting worse and the progress going across the lake slows and they can sense that the danger is increasing, what's happening inside them? I don't know what's happening inside them. I, had, I found a book where a man wrote about going through one of those storms. Here's what he said. My experience in this region enables me to sympathize with the disciples in their long night's contest with the wind. I spent a night in that area. The sun had scarcely set when the wind began to rush down toward the lake, and it continued all night long with constantly increasing violence, so that when we reached the shore next morning, the face of the lake was like a huge boiling cauldron. The wind howled with such fury that no efforts of rowers could have brought a boat to shore at any point along that coast. In a wind like that, the disciples must have been driven quite across to Gennesaret, as we know they were. <laughs> quite a storm, terrifying reality. And I don't want to minimize the reality, but it seems to me there's also some symbolism going on here. When you think about the church over the last 2,000 years, 
The people in that boat at that moment were the church of Jesus Christ, weren't they? And the church is often tossed to and fro on the waves of a troublesome world. Now, what I'm thinking about right now is the country of Syria. The latest Christianity Today has a long article on the plight of Christians in Syria. The Wall Street Journal yesterday, large article on the plight of Christians in Syria. Not Christians who've just been around a couple, three hundred years like we have, but Christians who've been th there for a couple of thousand years. Syria is part of the cradle of Christianity. And they're a minority. And it may be bad at times under Assad, but most of the Christians are convinced that any subsequent regime will be far worse for them. The Christians have been really squeezed in the land of Syria the last few months. When I was in Indiana Wesleyan last month, the first night I ran into Phil. Phil and I shared a house back in the 50s. Phil is a Syrian. At that point, he was a teenager. He had just been brought from Syria to the States by his adoptive parents, and I was living with those adoptive parents. And so Phil and I stood on that beautiful campus reflecting on what's happening in Syria right now. The storm on Genezaret or on the lake, I think, pictures the kinds of storms we have in Syria, and you could multiply it in other places in our world. pressures. Well, Peter was one of the men in that boat that night. Uh, he, Peter's had a lot of time uh, before he died to reflect on that experience. Here's, here's how Peter thought about life later in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Sometimes the turmoil is very literal, isn't it? Sometimes the turmoil is the physical storm. But maybe for us, more often, the turmoil is something broader than a physical storm, the kind of thing that Peter says goes with the territory. So those disciples that night were being tested. Now, I'm sure they were conscious that it wasn't the first time, right? If you know your Gospels, they had been in a boat at an earlier occasion and a storm in a boat in an earlier occasion. But that was different. There was daylight and Jesus was with them. Now, he didn't seem very helpful because he was asleep in the bottom of the boat, but at least he was with them. This time it's dark, 
and there's no Jesus. So this is worse. This is a more severe test than that earlier one they had. When you get to verse 26, <laughs> they thought it was as bad as it could get. But when they saw this man walking on the lake, they were terrified. Ah, put yourself in their place if you can. Confused, upset, tired, discouraged, fearful of disaster. If that's not bad enough, now you see the unbelievable, that which cannot happen. The other things at least could happen. This one can't. It's no wonder they're terrified. Now, if we have anything parallel to that, parallel to that it doesn't happen very often, right? Most of the time... Our turmoil is, is much less than that. Christians aren't always upset. There's times of peace. There are times of joy. But it's a reality that sometimes there will be turmoil in our lives. First observation. Second observation, which is very different, is that Christians have a source of peace. Because the story isn't just about the storm, is it? There's more to the story than that. Second observation, Christians have a source of peace. Now, in our eagerness to get to the storm part, you may not have noticed what happened earlier in the evening. Jesus sent them off. Where did he go? He says he went up to pray, didn't he? So let's take a glimpse of that other image. The image of Jesus up praying. Now the storm may be out there, and Peter and his buddies may be scared, but they don't realize that Jesus is back up on that hill praying for them. There is a source of peace in the middle of it. The Bible describes the relationship of Jesus to Peter on that occasion in a very similar way to the relationship of Jesus to you this evening. Listen to the language of Hebrews 7. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's one of the invisible images of Jesus. And it's one we want to hang on to. The Jesus who's up there on the hill praying for us. So if this week you find yourself in turmoil, what you see is not all that there is. You see the turmoil experience. What you don't see is the Jesus who is praying for you in the midst of that turmoil experience. The thing that keeps us from going under is that Jesus is praying for us. 
Well, initially he was praying for them, but later on he came closer, didn't he? You get down to verse 27. He immediately said to them, Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And again at verse 32, when he got in the boat, the wind calmed down. See, the Bible not only pictures Jesus up there praying for us in heaven, but it also pictures him here with us. Not in a way that we can see, but nevertheless here with us. How did he put it in the very last words of Matthew? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Two images then for you to take with you tonight of Jesus. One up there praying for you. The second image right here in our midst. That's comfort. That's a source of peace. Now, this story is told by Mark as well, but Mark adds a puzzling statement to it that Matthew doesn't give. When Mark is describing Jesus coming out across the water, walking on it, Mark says, Jesus intended to pass by them. Haven't they had enough, Jesus? Surely you're going to come out here and stop and, and, and solve this and help them. He intended to pass. That seems strange. Now, once again, he did something similar. At the end of his life, after the resurrection, on that road to Emmaus, Jesus started to walk right on by these people. So, so there are times when Jesus seems to pass me by. Times when I've had to cry out for help because it seemed like he wasn't helping, like he had walked right on by and he wasn't there. Despite the image of him praying for me and despite the image of him being with me, there are moments when it seems he's not around. This appears to be a way that we're tested. And in that test where we just sit and worry about our problems, we come back to God and say, God, notice me. Help me in the midst of this present struggle. That's, that's a theme all the way through Scripture. I'll give you just a couple examples. Psalm 10, opening words. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? There are, that's part of the Christian experience. That God seems sometimes to hide and don't hide from me. Come close. But when we cry out, he doesn't pass us by. He didn't walk on past in that occasion. He did stop and he did help. When he comes, he brings peace. Verse 27, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. 
So three observations. The first one is we do experience turmoil. The second one is in the midst of the turmoil, we have a source of peace. And the third observation, and all these are pretty obvious, Christians walk and Christians fall. We come to Peter, good old Peter. You know, he's, you can count on him to react first in every situation, can't you? Well, some of us would sort of sit back and ponder and decide what to do next. He's already moved on. And there are a lot of Christians like Peter. Maybe you identify with Peter. I identify more with the one who sits back and waits and tries to figure it out first before I do anything. But Jesus, if you're not going to get in the boat with us, I think that's what he's saying. Jesus, if you're not getting in the boat with us, I want to go with you. <laughs> that sounds dangerous, good, exciting, risky, foolish. From my perspective, yes, very foolish. But it's also an act of faith, isn't it? There's, there's a part of Peter you've got to admire. Has he ever seen anybody walk on water? Not except for Jesus. How, what makes him think he can do it? Jesus, if you're not getting in, I want to go with you. He's not, Peter's not one to say, well, God doesn't work that way. Let's, let's try it. Let's go. He's ready to believe that, in fact, there is something new under the sun. And, boy, he gets out, and he starts walking on that water, and it's wonderful. Now, like so many of the other things tonight, this isn't the only time that happened either. At the very end of the story, the last chapter of John, after the resurrection, John tells us that one morning the disciples were out there in the boat again, and Jesus on the shore making breakfast. And Peter realizes that Jesus is there, and it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. That time he didn't walk on it, but he jumped in and he swam to good old Peter. If Jesus is around, I'm going to be with him. No hesitation. Let's get going. He's willing to trust Jesus. Well, may God be pleased to give some of us who are more reluctant a bit of that faith that Peter had. Because we Christians must walk by faith. And sometimes that's going to involve doing some things that the, bio, that the world says you can't do. That's what Peter teaches us. Well, that's the highlight of the story, isn't it? Here he is out there walking on the water. And you sort of wish the story would stop at that point. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. <laughs> Once again, though, it seems like Peter, Peter, it seems to me, always looking for opportunities to contrast himself with the others. Right? I mean, even though there's something wonderful about what he does, at the same time, it's, you know, I'm going to outdo, I'm going to outdare, 
everybody else around me. As he did at a later point where Jesus was talking about people forsaking him. And Peter said, oh, no. Everybody else may leave, but I'm sticking. You know? He seemed to like to draw that line between himself and the others. <sighs> and he's doing it. It's wonderful. He's walking on the water, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. He looked away. And as soon as he looked away, he couldn't see Jesus anymore because the crisis filled his eyes and that water below him took the place of seeing Jesus. And now he stands out from the rest of the disciples in his weakness. They're still in the boat and he's down in the water. He fell because his circumstances loomed larger than the Christ. He went from a great moment to a bad moment. Now, if you and I get so wrapped up in our concerns about storms and the failures of Commonwealth Edison or about the sickness we're experiencing or about the money we think we don't have, and if that worry that storm causes us to lose sight of Jesus, then we're in real trouble. If we become problem-centered rather than Christ-centered, it's all gone wrong. Save me, Lord. I don't want to end this on a negative because he says, save me, Lord. And guess what happens? Jesus saves him. That's the good news in the midst of this, that Jesus saves him. Jesus put it this way in John 10, verses I absolutely love. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Peter, you may be sinking in the water, but I'm not going to lose you. When you say, save me, I will indeed save you. Okay, draw to a close. Actually, the story is told in three Gospels, and the response to the story is different in each one of the three. In Matthew... Or excuse me, I'm going to start with Mark. In Mark, if you read the story there, the conclusion is astonishment. They were astonished. Well, that's an appropriate conclusion, isn't it? Astonishment and hard hearts. The story didn't draw people as Mark saw it. Their hearts was hardened. Now, in John, it's as if the story is just told as a factual thing. Nothing happened. Mark, hard hearts. John, nothing. But here in Matthew, 
Here in Matthew, did you notice the last words? Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That's the right response. And that's the response for us tonight and in this week. Jesus, you have saved us. We worship you.